almost the, the witching hour for cocktails and so on in New York. Um, but I thought uh, I wanted to write something for you today um, about um, this particular painting. It's called Two Puerto Rican Boys, um, 1956. And it, um, the story of how the painting came about is very interesting, but it's not inseparable from Alice's uh, um, willingness to let, literally let people in through the door of her apartment. Um, so if, you, if you're bored um, after the first page of this, you can go in the other gallery and I'll be there soon. <laughs> um, when I was growing up and studying art history here in New York, there was not, to my knowledge, anything like an African-American art department. This was in the early 1980s. Even though I loved the courses I took, classes on Duchamp, art of the 60s, and so on, you had to go over to the Oceanic and African art departments to find something even remotely non-European related or derived. But the truth is that that art from the other continent and beyond was, along with the Italian and French painting I studied too, outside of my own experience, or more accurately, did not resonate in a personal way. I wanted to learn about my world in addition to those places. The only artist who even remotely reflected my society, the society of the real New York, was Alice Neal. I first became aware of her in 1974, when she had her first retrospective at the Whitney Museum. She herself was as old as the century, and when she was asked about the years she spent without representation or critical report, she said, it was okay, I had the paintings. She also had her mind and eye, and in rereading recently several interviews with her, I think her friend, the black American painter Barclay Hendricks, put it very beautifully when he said, I'm a former professor, and I used to tell my students, stay away from lines. And if you look at Alice's work, they're full of lines. I work with oil, acrylics, and magna, watercolor. I mean, she does, you know, work on paper sketches and things like that. But for the most part, she works directly on the canvas, and she has a reputation of using blue in her drawing outlines. Not just here, but with her other works. The live model situation has always endeared me to Alice. You can tell that she had people right in front of her. Before I started to rely on my camera, most of my images were done in the studio where I had a live model. It doesn't make a difference to me who the individual was. You can read anything into a portrait, and you see that's just canvas and paint. What your mind brings to a work may not have anything to do with what the artist had in mind. Alice was quite a personality and very honest and open. Excuse me. I, I love her very much, and whenever there's praise like this, I'm overwhelmed. But I'm going to read it again. She was quite a personality and very honest and open to the degree that it pissed off a lot of people in the art world. <laughs> but she was right. What Neil was right about, of course, was her politics and how it wasn't divisible from her daily life. She was a feminist down to her bones, but rejected inclusion at the expense of her critical apparatus. 
In an interview conducted late in life with the late curator, Henry Geltzahler, Neil said that Simone de Beauvoir annoyed her when she said that she could not live in a world created by men. To deny that, Neil said, was to deny the facts. She never backed away from how she was treated by women curators and artists for a long portion of her career. And she never backed away from criticizing other women artists, calling Grandma Moses, for instance, an American vegetable. <laughs> As an artist, she didn't deny the facts, calling herself a translator, adding that she was, quote, a sympathetic or sometimes not so sympathetic translator. She was different from the first. In 1983, she told the curator, Patricia Hill, I lived in the little town of Colwyn, Pennsylvania, where everything happened, but there was no artist or writer. There was no culture there. I hated that little town. I just despised it. And in the summer, I used to sit on the porch and try to keep my blood from circulating. <laughs> <laughs> Neil was the most touched in her personal and political life by difference. She said once, well, in politics and in life, I always liked the losers, the underdogs. There was a smell of success I didn't like, and success implied a certain kind of conformity. The people she loved and painted didn't fit in, couldn't. Her first and only husband, Jose Enriquez, a Cuban artist, gave me, she said, quote, a Latin American mentality. I hated everything American. I saw us as the colossus of the North. The great Cuban leader, Jose Martí, who had led the revolution, said that. Not to put too far the point on it, but let's just say, historically speaking, that I do not know many Depression-era white ladies from Colwyn, Pennsylvania, who moved to Spanish Harlem because of the culture and what El Barrio could offer her, including space and a relatively cheap overhead. In describing the apartment where the sittings in this railroad flat, in this room took place, she said, my apartment was a big railroad flat, but wider than most and very light with many windows. I always had a big place because of the painting. She began with the body and with the soul. The body was something she approached intuitively. She did not take anatomy drawing in her small art, Pennsylvania art school, she said, because, quote, I couldn't depersonalize people enough. I mean, I couldn't make a head an A. <laughs> Sometimes Neil's subjects came to her. This, ha this, this painting happened because the subjects showed up at her door. They said, we hear you paint Spanish kids, <laughs> Whenever I read that anecdote, I'm immensely touched by their request and Neil opening the door. She opened the door not only to these kids, but to the idea of a sitting as an invitation, an exchange of one being to another. Um,